Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. It's page uh, 1,220 in the Pew Bibles. Galatians 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was public, publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which is it? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, before Christ, to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the God. Well, as we continue today our studies in the book of Galatians, uh, we shift gears. We come to a, a new point of emphasis. Um, up on the screen here, you'll see in just a minute the uh, outline that I shared with you in introducing this book here a few weeks back. And we begin with the first section, and we have now covered those first two chapters. And those were more personal in nature. They dealt with the authenticity of the gospel, or the gospel's origination. And in that section, Paul was combating things that were, in essence, personal attacks against him. But in the context of defending the gospel. So, in a sense, he tells us his story in chapter 1, and then a couple of incidents in chapter 2 that also 
also illustrate the importance of the gospel. But now we come today, uh, beginning today, to the middle two chapters. And those middle two chapters are more doctrinal in nature. They deal with the superiority of the gospel or the gospel's vindication. And in this section, Paul combats legalism. Uh, now, I've come from experience to feel like legalism is always what somebody else is doing. You know, it's, it, it's never what we're doing. Um, but I, I think we're going to see that a lot of what he has to say about that can come pretty close to home in terms of how we think. And so it's a, a, a doctrinal section, but it's a heart level section in terms of its application. And then we'll finish up with those last two chapters, which are more practical in nature. They deal with the true liberty of the gospel or the gospel's application. And in that section, Paul, in a sense, goes to the other extreme, the other side, uh, opposite legalism, and he combats license and lawlessness. And there will be plenty to look at in that section as well. So this new section at chapter three is powerful and it's practical. Uh, Paul, again, uses very strong language, and we're going to see that there's a reason for that. But he shows us what the gospel means to us, how we on a day-by-day -day basis think the gospel and how we live it out. You know, up until now, the, the um, emphasis has been on what is the gospel. But now the emphasis is going to be what place does the gospel have in our lives and again on a day-to-day -day basis. So today we're going to examine the first 14 verses of chapter 3. And there are three things that I want to focus on. First of all, the message of this section. What is he getting at? And then we're going to step back a little bit and just pick out from that message the main elements that, in a sense, will just put this message in perspective. And then we're going to step back even further and, in a sense, just look at the meaning. In other words, that is how we live in freedom and enabling and the connection to Jesus that the gospel of Jesus Christ's work, finished work, gives us. We're going to look at how that plays out in our lives. So let's consider today living an everyday gospel. And before we do, let's ask the Holy Spirit for his help today. Oh, gracious Father, blessed Lord Jesus and gracious Holy Spirit, we call upon you today, Lord, to speak to us each one where we are, not just where we are in the pew, but where our hearts are, where our lives are. And we ask you today, Lord, that you will open your truth to our hearts, that we might see the Lord Jesus uh, as he's portrayed here, high and lifted up for our everlasting deliverance and for that freedom with which he makes us free. And so we call upon you today, Lord, to speak to each one of us individually, personally. And Lord, speak to me. Let me be ministered to while I'm ministering. Let me be taught while I'm teaching. Let, oh God, today, let us hear from God the Holy Spirit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's begin then with the message of it. And what I'd like to do is just go through these 14 verses and there are a few places where it's a little rough to understand exactly what it is talking about. And so we'll try to work out an understanding of these first 14 verses, but then also just see what exactly he is driving at and where that meets our lives. So let's begin at verse 1 of Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, 
who has bewitched you. Now, I mentioned strong language. I mean, in order for him to say that they are foolish, in order for him to say they are bewitched, something is drastically wrong. But what is it he's going to set over against that? He said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So in some sense, this foolishness, this being bewitched, is taking them away from seeing the gospel, from seeing the finished work of Jesus Christ, from seeing him crucified, having done all that was necessary for us. And so this is the gospel Jesus Christ crucified. It's a finished work. It's not, you know, he's not here to be the great teacher, as it were, you know, to show us how to live or to show us how to change. No, he died to set us free. He did something that satisfied the justice of God and gave us the ability to be free. Now, having done that, then what does the gospel do? It does teach us how to live and it does teach us how to change. But let's go now to the next four verses, verses two to five, and... I think you're going to see he's going to say the same thing at least three different times in a little bit different language. These are rhetorical questions that are expecting just one answer. But really what it's going to portray for us is this. There are two ways of seeing or believing or living the gospel. Remember what we said at the very beginning of this series that there's always two choices open to man. Two, as it were, ways of salvation. What man will do to save himself, which ultimately never works, or what God has done to save man. And so we're going to see that in these next verses. So look at verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. It was hearing with faith. It wasn't works of the law. Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having received the Spirit when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you now go on by working on your own life, by working all these things out with fleshly striving? Verse 4, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, I think this needs a little explanation. A lot of these are Jewish believers, and so they, they paid a price. Many of them suffered when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, because according to what the Jews thought, they were placing their faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the obedience of Jesus Christ, and turning their backs on obedience to the law of Moses. And so they suffered for that. That was unacceptable to many Jews and many of them were persecuted as a result. But if now, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, you were gonna say in a sense that the work of Jesus wasn't enough and now I have to grow and I have to change myself and I have to be a good subject of God by all that I do in my flesh, that all that I do in obedience to the law, why did you suffer? You're right back in obedience to the law of Moses. Why would you go through that? And then verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now in every one of these cases it expects one answer. It was faith. It was faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's crucified among you. That's who he is. 
And so it's Christ to trust in. And now as kind of a a clincher, he goes to verse 6 and he says, just as Abraham. Who's Abraham? He's the father of the Jews. He's the father of the Hebrews. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even the father of the faithful, even the father of the Jews believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Uh, Verse 7 says something really interesting. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, Abraham's true seed in his great covenant with God, the covenant of grace, his true seed are not the physical descendants. No, it's the spiritual descendants. It's the ones who believe the gospel. It's the ones who believe in a God who justifies the ungodly. Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 9 make that same point. Uh, We're going to see it again here in verse 9 in just a minute. But move to verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Isn't that an amazing thing that we have a verse in the New Testament that tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham? He preached the gospel to Abraham. This particular passage and this book as well, because when we get to uh, chapter 4, there'll be a lot more about this. But they form one of the strongest proofs that the way of salvation in the Old Testament was just the same as now. It was the same. By grace, through faith. In the one case, looking forward, to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, to the Lamb of God. In the other case, looking back on his finished work and his finished sacrifice. But then come to verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, those who believe the gospel, are the ones who are blessed with Abraham and are counted the seed of the faithful. But now he's going to say something a little different in these next verses, beginning at verse 10. And what he's going to do is give us a series of Old Testament quotes. Uh, In verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, he's going to give us these Old Testament quotes and verse 13 as well. But each of these quotes has one specific point, and that point is this. Look, if you're going to go back to trying to obey the law, if you're going to go back to trying to earn standing with God, you'd better take care because his standard is perfection or nothing. Perfection or condemnation or damnation. You, if you're going to go that route, you've got to do the whole law because a partial obedience will be worth nothing. And so we see, starting in verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You notice he doesn't leave any room that there might be some exceptions, people who actually did obey everything. (laughs) There's no chance, no such luck. No one has done that. And so that puts them under the curse of the law. Verse 11, now it is evident 
that no one is justified before God by the law for, and here is an important Old Testament quotation, the, uh, the righteous or the just, as many translations put it, shall live by faith. Now that comes from the Old Testament, but it is quoted three different times in the New Testament. It is that significant, it's that important that it is stressed again and again. The just in God's sight, the righteous shall live by faith. Their righteousness, their faith is in the righteousness of another greater than their own. But then verse 12. In verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Once again, an Old Testament quote, it, it appears several times. And what is it saying? Again, if you're going to choose the law, you're going to live by the law or you're going to die by the law. There are no, no other options. You live by it or you die by it. And again, if you go that route, the only thing that can ultimately happen is you die by it. But then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He delivered us from having to stand before God for what we deserve. He delivered us from that. He died to take that off the table. And so he says, he became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. You see, there was an Old Testament provision for cursing. And when someone was cursed, usually they were stoned first, but then dead already, but then hung on a tree. Why? As a public sign, a testimony of God's disfavor, okay? So Jesus Christ steps in for us. He takes the curse and he is hanged on that tree that is the cross so that that law can be silenced in our behalf. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament is the mercy seat. Because you see, there was a box, the ark, and in that ark was placed the two tablets of the law. There is the law crying out for obedience, and because we didn't obey, crying for condemnation. But what does God do? God says, no, you will make a mercy seat. And that mercy seat, if you'll go and study the dimensions they're given in Scripture, is an exact covering. It covers and silences that law. And what is done on the mercy seat? That is where on the Day of Atonement the blood of the Lamb is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the blood of the Lamb atones for that sin. The blood of the Lamb silences that law of condemnation. And you know what's even better? is the Lord says, there at the mercy seat is where I will meet with you. There. Right there where the blood has silenced and satisfied my wrath. There as my son, my daughter in Jesus Christ, I will meet with you. And I will be your God and you shall be my people. What a picture it is. But then finally we come to verse 14. And in verse 14, it says, so that... In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, everything God's covenant of grace wanted to pour out on the people he loved and would redeem, that the blessing, all of that, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And of course, all through this, uh, these 14 verses, you've heard the spirit again and again. Why is that important? Well, the Father administers. He planned redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ accomplished redemption. But it is God the Holy Spirit who applies redemption. 
He is the one who comes and takes the finished works of Christ and he makes it real. He quickens us and makes us alive, gives us faith to begin with. And then he does this amazing thing of being the presence and power of Jesus Christ to us day by day to grow us into him, to grow us into this relationship of enablement and of victory and of grace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the 14 verses, and there's a lot of overlap here, so that's why I want to step back for just a minute and just highlight the three main elements. So those main elements are three. They are first a gospel foundation, and then two ways, two ways that we might live and, and what we might do with that gospel. The gospel foundation as it, at its heart is Jesus Christ crucified for us. Jesus Christ, having done for us what we could not do for ourselves, he fulfilled all righteousness. He satisfied the Father. He pleased the Father every second of his existence for you in your place so that he might smile upon you. Jesus Christ crucified. But then also, as is emphasized in these verses, just like Abraham, the father of the faithful, those who are justified are justified by faith. And, and you know, we don't uh, have this faith that, that in a sense we, we, you know, we get a membership card. Okay, they're in, you know, and then we go on our merry way. No, it's a faith that begins looking to Jesus, but spends every day after looking to Jesus, leaning on him, walking with him, growing in knowing him and loving him. And so it continues in faith. But then also just the fact that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law that we don't have to stand before God day by day at any point for what we do and don't do. We stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the very love of Jesus Christ is what transforms us from inside out and makes us want to live just like Christ lived. But then let's look at those two ways. One, a foolish way to live according to this passage, and the other, the gospel way to live. Now that foolish way to live is described as bewitched. And I think that's good language because whether it is our flesh speaking, but more often the devil making a lot of use of this, what does it do? It always makes us look back at ourselves. It always makes what we do to be the most important thing. And you look at the language he uses. He, he calls it works. He calls it flesh. In other words, a fleshly effort. It is out of touch with the gospel. And that has really serious implications. Uh, we're right here in Galatians. You might have to turn a page maybe in your Bible. But look at chapter 5 and the first six verses here. And, and listen carefully. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery by going back to those works. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you're going to make that part of your obedience, that in order to be, uh, for God to be satisfied with you, in order for you to stand before him, you have to be circumcised, well, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. His coming, his life, and his death are not worth anything if you're right back to the law. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law, every last bit of it. You are severed from Christ if you do that. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. Now that's really strong language. A yoke of slavery, Christ of no advantage, uh, um, fallen away from grace, severed from Christ. Those are the implications of turning back to what we do. Turning back to trying to earn our standing before God or answer to our prayers or blessing or protection or fill in the blank. It's not on that basis. For, th for uh, verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith. So boy, if that does not underscore how vital this is and the fact that this foolish way to live by turning back to the law is indeed a curse because you have to be absolutely perfect and you can never escape the standard. But then of course the final main element is the gospel way to live and you know, repeatedly in these verses, it's the hearing of faith. It's believing God. It's listening to and following the Holy Spirit as he points to Jesus. The just shall live by faith every day and all day long. By looking to him, leaning on him, resting in him, trusting in him. That is the whole of it from start to finish. And then, of course, that last verse, verse 14. It is also believing in uh, and receiving all that Jesus has promised to us, all that he purchased for us by his perfect obedience and the shedding of his blood. So that's the, the main elements of this. Well, let's come now then to our final thought, and that is the meaning. So we are saved by faith in Christ, but it's a good question to ask, how then do we live? This whole passage stresses that it is a living faith. We continue in faith. Uh, as the theologians might say it, we are justified by faith, but we are also sanctified by faith. In other words, that work of sanctification which conforms us to the image of Christ, which uh, overcomes our sins over time, that whole process is not one where we, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, for our ticket to heaven, but now we got to work the rest out. No, it is all by faith. So you start by faith in Jesus and that never changes. We never stop needing the gospel. We never stop trusting in Jesus and what he did. Because that is what gives us victory every day, you see. It doesn't matter what you are facing at the minute. What is your particular trial? What is your particular difficulty? You start by looking back to the Lord Jesus. By taking everything he said in the world, you shall have tribulation, he said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Whatever its manifestation is in your life right now, whether it be sickness or relationship difficulties or job troubles or circumstances of one kind or another, I am the overcomer. Look to me. Lean on me. Trust in me minute by minute. So we never stop needing the gospel. Uh, 
We never stop trusting in Jesus and what he did. Performance Christianity is what the devil wants us to live in. And the sad part about it is it's our default switch. I mean, I never have to be reminded to jump back to I get what I deserve. I just, I think that way. Uh, it, it's, that's what I have to fight. That's where I have to apply the gospel and preach it to myself. Because that is not how the Lord wants me to think. That's how the devil wants me to think. We get what we earn or we get what we deserve. But man, as we've seen from this passage, if that's how you're going to live, you're sunk. You're in trouble. You will not win because you cannot win. It just cannot be done. But the Christian message to you and to me is not try harder, do better, you're responsible to transform yourself, to make you sell yourself into the image of Jesus for all to see. The Christian message is not move forward as a believer by leaning on your own effort, what we call striving, and I think that's a really good word for it. What this passage also calls the flesh. No, it is not by that. That will always lose. And you know, the word of God stresses this to us in a lot of different ways. And I, I want to read you now a few passages that say this very thing. And then a few quotes of people who've learned this same thing in the school of hard knocks. But as I go through these, I want you to, to think about this and to hear this with the idea of, you know, is, is my Christianity religion? Is it a lot of things I do and things I don't do and, and a lot of rote? Or is there rest in it? Is the relationship more than the religion? Is it an interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ every day where I feel his smile, where I see the witness of his blood of how much he loves me? And I rest in that. Is it not performance and not striving? It's Jesus all day long. Let me begin with John chapter 6 and verse 63. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Key words there. Other translations, the flesh profits nothing. Nothing. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit in her life. I'm here to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. Look to me. Lean on me. Then Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Uh, and here the Apostle Paul says, For we are, and you could add the true circumcision. If I had time to go through the whole context of it, you'd see it. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. None whatsoever. Because there's none that it will bear. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Because if we do, we lose. We lose. Yes, we're in the flesh, but we live by faith. And then John chapter 15 verses 4 and 5. That were part of our call to worship today. The Lord Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is why I say this living by faith, connection is its very heart. 
I mean, you know what he's talking about, a vine and a branch. You know, you snap it off, you're done. (laughs) It's just going to wither and die. Our connection to him, our consistent, constant, um, spirit-filled connection to him, remaining in him, is absolutely key. And so unless you abide in me, then verse 5, I am the fine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Why? Because the life of the Son of God and God the Son is flowing through him by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yes, he bears much fruit. But then these last words, for apart from me you can do nothing. And what is that saying? Is it saying you can't act, you can't function apart from him? Oh, no, no. No, it's saying you can't do anything effectually. You can't do anything that wins. You can't do anything that walks in the power and truth of the gospel. Apart from him, it just isn't there. It just doesn't exist. Now, as I mentioned, I also want uh, to quote some of God's servants who learned the same lesson. And uh, they probably just like, like you and I, by striving and failing, by striving and not getting there. The first is James Proctor uh, from an old hymn. He says this, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone gloriously complete. That's the truth. Then John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, he said, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. For better news, the gospel, far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Powerful. And then John Newton, who... uh, Wrote Amazing Grace, I think that's the way we know him most of all. He was a slave trader, a wicked man, who uh, through a series of misfortunes became a slave himself, whom God rescued in a mighty way and then brought him to faith and made him a minister of his gospel. And uh, uh, he wrote... He wrote a book, and you can find a bunch of different versions of it. Its its original title was Cardaphonia, which is the voice of the heart. And what it is is a series of letters that he wrote pastorally uh, to people in his church and to other pastors and all over the world, letters that just have such powerful encouragement. But here's what Newton says. By various maxims, forms, and rules that pass for wisdom in our schools, I sought my passions to restrain, but all my efforts proved in vain. But since my Savior I have known, are all my rules reduced to one, to keep my Lord by faith in view? This strength supplies and motive too, love for the Lord Jesus. Again, a good word. So what the Apostle Paul and all these have said as well, what they're saying here is this. Foolish, bewitched Galatians, this works way of living, this performance mentality, it's oppressing you, it's putting you in bondage, it's killing you. You've got to flee from it. Jesus did all the work already. And his spirit is right there with you to make the presence and the power of Jesus yours as you look to him, as you trust in him. 
And folks, this is absolutely vital. Living by real faith, living by the power of the Spirit means, as John 15 showed us, living connected to Jesus Christ, your Savior, every day. Folks, there's nothing more important to connect with the Lord Jesus and to stay connected. It takes time. We've got to give time to that. But he is there to be our present living Savior. He wants our fellowship. And he wants to pour out all the goodness that he purchased by his life and his death into us as we connect with him, meet with him, live with him. So how do you live this? <clears throat> Especially when your default is set to performance? Well, you might begin by thinking about where you tend to look at yourself rather than Jesus. And let me just give a few examples. Are you reluctant to pray because you've not been good enough to deserve any good answers? Oh, folks, look away from yourself. Look to Christ. He did all the deserving. You deserve what he deserved because you are in him. Is it this? Have you given up trying to meet with God because you've started over so many times and failed every time and so now you're totally hopeless about it? But once again, you're applying a standard. You think there's a right way to do it and you think you've got to be consistent and you're applying a lot of law to it. The Lord Jesus says, just show up. I don't want what you can do and what you read and how many verses you memorized or how much you prayed. I want you. Just show up. Just be there. Just be mine. Do you think maybe I'm not a very good Christian? Or I'm not a very good wife? Or husband? Or father? Or mother? Or son? Or daughter? Or student? Or employee? Fill in the blank. Again, what is he doing? The devil has you looking at yourself instead of the righteousness of the one who loved you with an everlasting love. You have his righteousness you are loved, you are valued as a result. Maybe there are certain areas of your life you've tried again and again to conquer, but all you've experienced is just total defeat. So you're sure God is miserably unhappy with you. That's not the gospel. You are looking to yourself and at yourself. Folks, whatever your particular brand of bondage or performanceism, if you will, Galatians presents to you Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ having finished the work. He died for you so that all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. So that you are his well-beloved bride. So that you could know that no matter what is happening around you at the minute, he loves you and is for you every minute. I love that expression. You know, never let what's going on around you dictate what's going on inside you. Jesus Christ took care of that at the cross. Jesus Christ made you valued. So how do you live this out? You look at Jesus. You talk with Jesus. You walk with Jesus. You trust in Jesus with all your heart. He will hear you when you call. He will be your deliverer as you trust in him. He has made himself responsible for your welfare. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He's your bridegroom, you say. So go to him. Believing who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised. Because he loves you and he will do you good. That's who he is and that's the only way he acts. Let's bow in prayer. Let's all pray.
Oh, Father, we bless you today. We praise you that you have sent your only begotten Son to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. And Lord, it is exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Lord, thank you that you are infinite and there are infinite treasures in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which God the Holy Spirit is so happy to reveal to us. And so we call upon you, O oh God, that each of us will see that. We'll see it as a glorious vision of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, having a life that is, as you have described it in Romans, is your kingdom, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Father, let that be our life, we pray. And so to that end, we pray, let the gospel be buried deep in our hearts. Let us never lose sight of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you will give us grace to die to whatever is just the trappings of religion, that we might have a glorious relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we enjoy, that we're transformed by every day and all day long. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you will now, let's stand for our closing hymn. Closing hymn is the solid rock, tremendous words in this hymn.